God's Word. We have been singing of that Word today. God's Word. It generates spiritual life. And then it sustains and it strengthens that life in the people of God. The truth God reveals in His Word is as vital to our souls as food is to our physical bodies. And it is this presence and influence of God's Word in our lives that marks us and distinguishes us as His chosen people in this dying world. God's Word distinguishes us in two fundamental ways, it seems, and particularly drawing from the passage that we'll consider here today. But first of all, God's Word determines what we believe. It is truth, it is knowledge, it is wisdom, it is counsel and light, and it is truth that unbelievers do not share with us, at least in total. Secondly, God's Word determines how we live. It is the truth revealed to us, it is the direction for how we live our lives. Authentic Christianity always unites these two concepts. And when the two concepts are pulled apart, there's disaster. The Christian faith is both a body of truth to be received and it is a life to be lived. In fact, we do not truly believe God's Word unless we put it into practice. And we do not put it into practice unless we know it and believe it to be true. But when we receive and live God's Word in our daily lives, that Word will continually distinguish us from the world around. It's always been this way. Christianity has never been truly, in its genuine sense, popular. Christ told us that. Take up your cross and follow me. Be warned when all people speak well of you. They hated me, they will hate you. There is a broad path that leads to destruction, a narrow path that leads to light. This is what our Savior said. Now this isn't the sanitized Savior that we'll find often referred to in our culture, but this is what He said. And it is His Word that is part of that distinguishing feature in our life. A man who knows the Bible well but does not put it into practice can live among unbelievers without distinction. Nobody really cares ultimately what he's thinking in his brain, what he, what he thinks to be true, and he dabbles in Christian theology, reads books, and reads his Bible. That's fine, as long as he doesn't live any differently than we do. A woman who convinces herself she's a Christian but really doesn't know what Christ said will ultimately always follow an idolatrous characterization of Jesus. The sanitized Jesus that we find everywhere in our culture. The one who only said half of what he said. The one who really didn't mean what he said. The one with whom we do not really need to deal. She'll live that way because she doesn't really know what he said. And so she'll create a Jesus of acceptance in her life and those around her. James writes mostly... And we come back to this book, James chapter 1, this morning. He writes mostly to Jewish Christians who are living outside of the promised land. 
And he wants to bring to their attention that when we rightly alloy Christian doctrine with Christ-like obedience, we will live distinctive lives. It's not going to look like everyone else around us. It's going to look like our Savior indicated. And so as he writes to these Jewish believers, let's remember in the context of their day, very different than ours, but they are generally moving throughout the known world and getting into commerce. They're trying to make a living. They're outsiders who are striving to do that, and they're entering into a world where there is a degree of wealth, but it's not shared by the majority by any means, and they find themselves on the lower echelon of society, generally speaking. And so they are running into all kinds of power brokers who are causing them a fair amount of trouble. These are people, these power brokers, who use position and pride and influence to oppress others. And James's readers are some of those that are being so oppressed. But isn't this the way wickedness is? His readers are not only being oppressed by these people, but they want to be like them. What they really can't wait to do is to gain the wealth and gain the power and the influence where they can begin to be the big people who squash the little people. This is very clear as we read the book on some level. And they, so they are tempted with using speech that mimics the power brokers. They're tempted with using money in such a way. They're tempted with being those uh, people of influence and pride. Even though they're suffering at the hands of many who are acting in these ways. James says, we need to be very, very different people than this. And he speaks into their lives, calling his readers to change their perspective on life. He calls them and us to live with distinctive devotion to the Lord, a life that is calibrated to our new identity as the followers of Christ. And it's in this context that James stresses now in chapter 1 the necessity of receiving and living the Word of God. The presence of God's Word in our life will make us distinct, but it must be this merging, this alloy of Christian doctrine and truth with obedience to what Christ has said. So James transitions from this reality of verse 18 where the Word of God brings us life to practical counsel concerning how this new life is to look in daily practice. Let's remember, just as we finished off last week at verse 18, he says in James 1 and verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He brought us forth. He gave us birth, spiritual birth. How? By the word of truth. By the word that God has revealed about the truth, about reality, He brings spiritual life to His people. And it is that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. That we are part of the redemptive work that Christ is doing. He brings us this new life by the word of truth. Now, bouncing off of that idea, we enter into something of a new section here where he says, begins in verse 19, with an emphasis upon our necessity to receive the Word. So the Word is there in our lives. It makes us distinctive in this world. And we are then to look at it as receivers. 
to receive the word is the theme. And he starts off very practically. This may not strike us at first, but I think that what he is saying in verses 19 and 20 is that we must be receptive first to the words of others and practically to the words of others. He'll get to the word of God here in a moment, but notice what he says here in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to to anger. For, or we could say because, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Quick to hear. Is this a reference to hearing God's word? Many see it that way. But if so, it seems difficult to me, quick to hear God's word, slow to speak God's word, slow to speak to God. Is he saying, don't pray quickly? Uh, don't pray often or something along those lines. And then slow to anger. What does anger have to do with hearing God's word and being slow to speak God's word? I think the phrase slow to anger makes it clear that this is a social setting. It's dealing with people. And so I would take it that way. And I think there's a connection here to hearing God's word. But slow to anger points to a social context as powerful people with influence and wealth and pride are angry with those who do not cooperate, and they do not care to stop to listen to the peons. The Word of God in your life, having been born again by that Word, will mean that you relate differently to the world around. You will be, first of all, quick to hear. You'll be a receptive listener, I think is the idea. Jesus, we know, listened to people. He did so with humility. He did so with love. He did so with respect to those who are made in the image of God. It's possible for us to listen to one another while failing to listen to God, but it is impossible for us to listen to God and not listen to others. When we do not listen intently and with characteristic sincerity to one another, we betray a corresponding failure to listen to God. Christ-like character, James is saying, is to be anxious to listen intently. Now we're all given to distractions, certainly, but we're also given to pride. And it's more this area of pride that James is addressing. We need to graciously and humbly know that what others have to say is important. It's important. And we need to convey that truth. We're able to hold our tongues when the Word of God dwells within us. We are slow to the kind of anger that generates harmful words. Now there it says that we're to be slow to anger, not that we're never ever to be angry for any reason. There is a place for righteous anger, but we are to arrive at that place slowly, patiently, and in a manner that reflects the character of God. Those who have no capacity to be angered by anyone or anything are not walking with Jesus. He got angered, but it was a slow, slow cook to the place where anger was the only appropriate response to some who hurt others and oppose God. 
We're to be quick to hear, slow to speak, to hold our tongues and be willing to listen, and we're to be slow to anger. And why is this, verse 20, because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now that's righteousness, how do you take that? That's not the gift of righteousness from God. But it's the goodness God requires of His people, the right treatment of others which God approves. When we are given to anger, when we are quick to speak, when we don't listen to others, it does not work out what God expects of His people. Angry, competitive, demanding, harsh words do not honor God. This is far more confrontational, I think, to the original readers than might meet the eye. That's exactly how you do business in the world. And it's not a culture that's as influenced by the teachings of Christ as the one in which we live. This is one in which the powerful always won. In that world, you speak quickly, you don't listen to the peons, and you blow your top to get your way. Goes on around our culture too, doesn't it? That does not work the righteousness of God. That is not Christ. And it's going to mean that you operate differently in the world in which He has placed you. Now, you notice here, James does not bother for one moment to address how my anger hurts me, how it is unhealthy, how it is undignified, how it is debilitating to me. He focuses on how our anger affects God. It does not work the righteousness of God. It does not accomplish or produce the righteousness of God. So quick-tempered, reactionary, emotionally charged speech is the opposite of what I would call here in context a receptive person. A receptive person. One that other people see as one who will receive words and will receive the person. Not drive away, not hold at arm's length, but is receptive. Slow to speak, quick to hear, slow. To anger. Rarely will we ever ask forgiveness for being too patient in our speech or getting angry too slowly. But how often must we seek forgiveness for not listening, for being too quick to talk and too slow to hear, inattentive to the words of others because of our pride? and our self-centeredness. I picture this, perhaps, as the ideal receptionist. If you had a business, and there was a receptionist that played a very important part in welcoming the community into your business and working to get people where they need to be, the face of the company, so to speak, the front yard of that company, who would you choose? Let's just assume we'd all choose a woman, because that would be smart. (laughs) There probably are good male receptionists. I just haven't met many of them. But there's some really capable women receptionists. So in my mind, ideally, I'm thinking there's this woman who receives people. How is she receiving them? She's anxious to listen, right? She conveys the idea, I want to hear what you have to say as you come off the street as a stranger. And you know the stereotype of the receptionist that's doing her nails and doesn't have any time to listen to the people that are actually coming in and trying to do business, right? 
That's not the ideal receptionist. She hears. She's listening. She takes it in. She really gets it. She knows what has to happen next to help the person she's listening to. The person coming off the street, she's not saying, boy, do I got a story to tell you. Can you believe what happened to me today? Listen to this. That person's going, Where, who is this? Receptivity to people. An orientation to others that says, you matter I'm listening, and I'm here to help. we got a lot of work to do. But this receptivity is a life to which God calls us. Now, secondly, and most significantly in this passage, is to the reception of the Word of God. Not only receptivity to people, but reception to the Word of God that he is speaking. Verse 21, therefore, he says, and I think he's connecting here probably primarily to verse 18, We have the new life through the word of truth. Therefore, verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. There's that word receive. Again, the concept to receive. Therefore, pointing back to verse 18, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. An argument could also be made that therefore is pointing forward, and I think in some sense it's doing that as it moves us to the Word of God. But put away filthiness and rampant wickedness is quite clear. The grammar can be taken to indicate a preliminary step. We don't need to press this, but I think that there might be some wisdom in that. That is, we need to pull out the weeds from the soil of our heart. We must first prepare the soil of our soul to receive the Word. We must first strip off the soiled garments of sin. That type of idea. To prepare for the Word of God. The receptionist who is in the middle of work and somebody appears at her desk and almost startles her at that moment isn't really ready, is she? And she may have to adjust quite quickly, and depending on how good she is, she'll, she'll be able to hear the message and receive it and the like. But how much better prepared is she if she sees the person coming, walking through the door? She gets herself ready and says, I'm going to receive this individual. In a sense, that's what God is saying we must do to the Word of God. We must strip off sin. We must clear the soil. We must be prepared to receive it and to do so warmly. Receive it, it says here, with meekness. The idea is not at all what our culture would think, but rather it is with humility, with openness, with ears that are attuned to what God's Word says. We're to receive it meekly, verse 21, this implanted Word which is able to save our souls. This implanted Word having the idea of a seed that takes root. God's Word takes root within us. This is a strange thing, isn't it? Because some of you are here, and I trust by God's grace, the majority say, "I, I get that. I've heard the Word of God, and these words that, given a different orientation, I could look at them and say, they're insanity. They don't make any sense at all. This stuff is weird. God taking on flesh, being born of a virgin. Who on earth is going to believe that? But that word, to a receptive heart, takes root. And it changes us. 
it transforms us. And we come to the place, I was thinking that as we were singing these songs today, as we come to the place where we go, it's too good to not be true. It's just simply too good to not be true. And we come to look at what this word says. We come to see it implanted within us, and we get that. It leads to a new way of seeing, a new way of living, a spiritual reality with God that is alive and vibrant and real. It's not insane. It's not a joke. It is absolutely impossible for any of us to have concocted this account this story, this way of salvation. But this implanted word, connecting again, if it is, to verse 18, is able to save your souls, James says, verse 21. And I think the majority of his readers understand that. The majority of us here today understand that. That word has taken root within us, and it saves our souls. I don't think here that he's talking primarily about conversion, but probably looking long-term to the final salvation, because he's talking here to believers, Right? Verse 18. There's no question there. That's his primary audience. Those who have been regenerated by the Word. The Word has a long-term effect of saving our souls, of bringing us ultimately to God. So here, speaking of the life-sustaining power of God's Word that bears fruit in the believer's life for eternity. Receiving the Word, hearing it, understanding it, warmly taking it into our hearts is one half of the equation. I hope we grab that. This is ABCs to Eden Baptist Church, isn't it? This is so clear, so obvious. We know we're always receiving the Word of God. But we move secondly to the fact that we must live the Word of God. Verse 22, we must live the Word of God, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It is right and good to hear God's Word. It is not right and good to merely hear His Word. We must do it. We must live out its implications in active obedience in every detail of our lives. As Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the Word of God. Is there a period there? He said, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. He said the same thing, and James is simply echoing Christ here. It's not merely good advice. It's not something you might want to try if you're a super saint. What he is saying is it's absolutely essential. We receive the Word and we do it. We live it out. This is the calling. If the Word we claim to know and believe does not translate into active obedience, we are deceiving ourselves. There's a very sad story of a pastor who grew cold to God's Word in his life, but he knew it really well. One night, he knew where he was headed. He got in his car. He was going to meet a woman that was not his wife, and he was going to throw his life away and his ministry away by being with this woman. And later in counsel, he said, the whole way in the car there, I said, I am dead to sin, I'm alive in Christ. I am dead to sin, I am alive in Christ. I'm dead to sin, I'm alive in Christ. It did me no good. I knew God's Word, I quoted God's Word, and it did not help. 
And the wise counselor working with him said, what you needed to do was quit quoting God's word and turn your car around. We can hear it and hear it and hear it and not live it. Now, it's important that you do this work in James 1, and I want to help you here and work with this myself, and that is not, this is not a call to you to find some strength within yourself to do a little better than you've done before. The ability to obey God's Word is rooted in the new life that God's Word gives It is because of the initiative of God, chapter 1, verse 18, it is Him giving us birth through His Word that we have the capacity and the power to live that Word. Now, we may not act on that capacity, but we're not going to find it within ourselves and within our own strength on its own. We must rather work through God's Spirit to be responsive to the life that He's given and to obey that Word. It is connected to what God has done. But, having said that, we're to be doers of the Word, not hearers only. Verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the Word, Paul, uh, James is now going to work this out and with illustration, if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. When I look in the mirror each morning, it's a mercy of God that I quickly forget what I saw. That's not a bad thing when we look in a mirror, right? That's that's a good thing. But that is not how we should look at the Word of God in the pages of Scripture or how we should hear it as it is proclaimed. We need to seek to hear the Word in such a manner that it is imprinted upon our hearts. And frankly, practically, there is here a discipline of concentration that we must bring to the page. You, If you've read the Bible for any length of time, you've had this experience, you've sat down with it, you've read it, you've shut it and said, I don't remember a thing I read. Anybody? This happens to me too often, more than I'd like to admit. Our mind wanders, our concentration wanders, and we have to learn the discipline of concentration. Let's admit it happens in church too. We leave a service and go, I really don't know what that was about. Because the discipline of concentration is lacking. This is just speaking in practical terms, and again, this isn't the whole deal. But there has to be a commitment on our part to not only receive this word, but to receive it in such a way that it sticks, that we grasp it. Not just looking at it as if looking at a mirror and walking away, but looking at it in such a way that it grasps our affections, that it truly counsels us in our life. In contrast to this one who looks at the Word like looking in a mirror and walking away, verse 25, here's what it is to look like, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It's a promise of God. 
Now the law here, I think, is equivalent to God's Word. It's not a reference to the Mosaic law as such, although James may hint at the law as fulfilled by Christ and being the law of love. But it's the perfect law. It points to the complete sufficiency of God's Word. It contains all that we need for life and godliness. Can you put that together in your mind? The law of liberty. Americans really have a hard time with that phrase. The law that liberates. But when you are born again by the truth of God's Word and you receive God's Word with persevering, patient, disciplined joy, in time you learn that God's counsel is freedom. It's freedom. If you know it's taking you to your destination, you don't view the GPS in your car as restrictive. By keeping you on the right road, you are free to reach your preferred destination. We see this all the time. I've got this app that's working on my phone. It's taking me right where I want to go. It's saying, don't go down this street, don't go down this street, go down this street, and I'm thankful for it. It's freedom. I get where I want to go on time. Why is it then that we take God's Word and say, that's restrictive? If we get it, if we know what it is, we know the heart of God, we know the value of the wisdom that He gives us in His Word, it is freedom. It is freedom that says, don't go down that road and head down this one. That's what James is stressing here. When we take it in, when we receive it into hearts that are receptive, this Word leads to our liberty It leads to our freedom. It directs us wisely. So negatively, do not merely hear the Word. Positively, persevere in obedience to that Word. And thirdly, practically demonstrate true religion in response to that Word. And he brings that out by way of application in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He doesn't say, good try, nice you're going to church. He says it's worthless. We see, first of all, by way of illustration, the hypocrisy of an unbridled tongue. Many, many years ago, I saw an article on this text, and it had the picture of a tongue being ridden by a cowboy with a bridle. I can't get that image out of my head. (laughs) It really worked, and it's one of the reasons why you don't picture illustrations. It was just gross. But think about it. There's to be a bridle on our tongues. We know what that means figuratively. Without it, our religion is worthless. I can make it to every service of the church. I can have a deep understanding of the Bible. I can participate in the rituals that are provided. But if I use my tongue to speak harsh, judgmental words, words of ridicule and deception and attack and corruption, if I swear and gossip and tell dirty jokes, my church attendance and giving and service is worthless. James is speaking very strongly. There could, this could be nuanced. He could give counsel to someone in a certain situation that may track a bit differently than what he said here exactly, but he means what he's saying. 
If I'm receiving the Word of God, if I am living in religious ritual and I can't control my tongue, I've got nothing. Now, some answer, well, there it is. I need to quit going to church. I'm a hypocrite anyway. I need to quit going to church. No, you need to put a bridle on your tongue. Why would you choose not go to church? Why would you choose not be part of religious order that does have a formative influence in our life? What you need to do is bridle your tongue. That's what I need to do. Indeed, it's easy for us to think, isn't it? Yeah, I hope that guy's listening. I hope she hears this. You have a tongue that needs to be bridled. I have a tongue that needs to be bridled. We are quick to speak. We are given to words of anger. We are given to words that are not wise. And we need to bridle our tongues. That's true religion. That's what it looks like. And the purity of a religion, secondly, that helps the vulnerable and seeks holiness. So one, the tongue. Two, help to the vulnerable. And thirdly, distinctiveness from the world and holiness. Verse 27, we find numbers 2 and 3. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. True religion does not merely attend church services, it attends to the needs of vulnerable people. Now please, I think it's absolutely vital that we recognize James is not talking exhaustively here. He's not saying you deal with these three areas, it's all good. You have a good tongue, you deal with vulnerable people, you keep yourself unstained from the world. I mean, that pretty much covers all of it, depending on how you want to twist it. But I don't think he's seeking to be exhaustive here. This is one manifestation of many deeds of righteousness that authentic faith produces. Having said that, attention to the vulnerable is how that genuine faith rejoices to behave. Remember the context again? Crush the poor. You're being crushed by the wealthy and the powerful. They're to be used so that we get our way. We make more money. We're in a better situation. He says, no, true religion is to care for those that are vulnerable, for orphans and widows. And again, I don't think he speaks exhaustively there. All types of vulnerable people. And then secondly, or thirdly, separation from moral degradation of the world. The unrighteousness, the ungodliness that we're to remove in order to receive the Word is an ungodliness we want to stay clean of. Lying and gossip. And infidelity and illicit sexual experimentation and murder and theft and gluttony and drunkenness and hatred and selfishness in a thousand forms and on and on it goes. It's not a list of the proud saying don't live like this because we don't. It's a list for the humble who say that's exactly who I am. But by the grace of God I've been changed. By the grace of God a new life has been given and in that new life, I am learning to live the righteousness of Christ. Not flawlessly, I must confess my sin and repent. But I'm saying I've been called to a new life, a life of purity. Not a life that mimics the world, a life that follows Jesus Christ. 
There's a great difference. The power brokers of this world, the powerful, wealthy people that influence this culture are not given to moral purity. They are not given to keeping themselves unstained from the world. And in this we must make a conscious decision to follow Jesus. One has said it this way, believers who have been reconciled to God by means of the new birth must constantly work to distance themselves from the way of life that surrounds us on every side. To keep themselves spotless, a literal reading of the Greek word here, doesn't mean sinless necessarily, but it does mean morally pure. To keep us spotless from the world's contaminating influence is the key. So true faith sets the believer off from the way that unbelievers commonly live. The presence of the Word of God received and lived out will distinguish us from the world around. This theme is so pervasive in the Scriptures. It's something that we absolutely must get. get. Many Christian communions do not. They land entirely on here's how to live doesn't make any difference what you believe and then there are other communions it's all about what we believe getting all our ducks in a row and they live like the world around them we have to bring the two together and the scriptures constantly bring this out the apostle paul urges timothy in the church where he's leading to stand up against those who quote teach any different doctrine so you got to get in the trenches and you got to fight for the truth he says to Timothy, he goes on, devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies and speculations. That is what? That's false religion. Don't let people track down those ways. But he concludes it this way. Hear it. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's not just about fighting for the doctrine. It's living a new life. It's both and, as Jesus put it, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. There it is in a capsule. It's a consistent theme in the New Testament that genuine Christianity comp is comprised of faith in the truth that God has revealed and active obedience to that truth. So our ideal receptionist, if she ignores people and fails to listen to them, she's a bad receptionist but what if she's just a great listener people come in there's a warm reception she hears everything that they have to say they're saying i'm here to see this person i don't know where they are can you send me to the right place and she just keeps staring at them listening oh that's wonderful that's interesting i hear what you're saying you need to find somebody in this building and they're going yeah i need to find somebody in this building could you help me out I understand what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. That makes good sense. And pretty soon they're going to hit her over the head with a book, right? It's like, wake up, lady. i got to have some help here. She's just hearing. She's not doing anything. We have receivers on the gridiron, right? They, they receive the ball or take a running back who receives the ball from a quarterback, which is a lot harder than it appears. But running at 100 miles an hour, you get this ball in your gut and you got to grab it. And, well, you got this receiver 
this running back that's constantly taking the ball and then sits down on the ground. And the coach says, what are you doing? You're supposed to keep running. Well, I got the ball. I didn't fumble it. You told me not to fumble. I'm supposed to get, oh, I got it. I grabbed the ball. The quarterback gives it to me. I grab onto it. I hold onto the ball, and I'm not fumbling. And the coach says, listen to me, buddy. You're not running. You're not going anywhere. You're just falling down. You're losing the game for us. You can, yeah, you, great. You don't fumble the ball, but you've got to go somewhere with it. Well, those are failed, flawed illustrations. But there's a sense in which that's what can happen to us. We can receive the message. We can grab the football, but we don't go anywhere with it. We don't do anything about it in our daily lives. You've got to have both. If you've got a running back that's constantly dropping the ball when it's handed to him, he's not going to be playing very long. And if he sits down on the ground when he gets the ball, he's worthless. We receive the Word of God in this church week after week after week. We pour over it phrase by phrase, word by word, chapter by chapter. We look, we grow, we develop, we talk about it theologically, systematically within the teaching of our church. There is great benefit in that and there is great danger. And the danger is that we know what God has said and we go from here and we do nothing about it. We don't make changes in our life. We don't repent of sin. We don't change. We just take in the truth. James is looking at us in the eye and saying, you live in a world that's very bent against the truth. Take God's word in and run with it. And maybe for you today, truly the application here is as one who has received the Word of God and has come to new life in Christ, it is clear as the Spirit brings conviction into your life, I need to go from here and I need to repent. I need to ask God's forgiveness of hypocrisy in my life. I'm hearing the Word of God, I know what it's saying, but I'm not putting it into practice. That would be a real good outcome of this gathering today to go home, to pray to God, and to say, forgive me. I need your forgiveness. And with faithfulness to commit yourself to a path by the grace and the strength of God in response to the life that He's given, to look like Christ. And to look to Christ and not to His critics for the way that you're going to live your life. There are others among us, perhaps, who need to simply consider this gift of the Word of God. It is a gift, and it is a power. It is the power of God. To respond in repentance, not relying upon religion, not relying upon your works of righteousness, but rather trusting in what Christ has done for you to pay the penalty of your sin, to rise from the dead in victory, to put your faith and your confidence in that word and that message which comes not from within but from without. A word of rescue, a word of salvation, a word of forgiveness. It's a gift that He gives. 
As I mentioned, we look at the Word of God, we look at the truth that we find in Scripture, and it's very easy to see why people say it's insanity, it's impossible. This is a story that's incapable of, 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 of reason in some sense, it seems. Work through this. If that's where you are, and you say, I just don't know if I can believe it. I just don't know. It just seems like stories. Ask yourself, how are you going to be forgiven by your Creator? What's the path you're going to take to get there? I would hope that little by little you come to the realization that all of my good deeds, all of my good works fall infinitely short of an infinitely pure God. There's only one answer, and that's for God to pay the price. And this is the beauty of the gospel. And this is why we say it seems too good to be true, and then it seems too good not to be true. Because there is no other answer to how sins can be forgiven by a righteous God than for that God to take the penalty and pay the price himself. This he has done. And this is the word that we receive. And this is the word I would call you to respond to in faith, in repentant faith, turning from sin to trust what Christ has done for the forgiveness of sin. Let's bow for prayer. We are thankful, Lord, for the power of this word, for its presence in our life, and I pray that it would be clear to everyone who knows each of us who know the Lord that the Word of God is in our lives, that it's changing us, it's transforming how we think, what we believe, and it is being put into practice in our daily lives such that we are distinguished from those around, such that there is a grace and a love and a goodness and a faithfulness and a purity of life that can be attributable to nothing else but that God is in our life, that He's in our life through the revelation of His Word the written Word, and the living Word, Jesus Christ. May you bring this about and draw to yourself anyone who knows not Christ as Savior, we pray. In His name, amen. I believe the Scriptures are clear that it brings God great glory, that we don't just hear the Word and walk away, but that we think about it. Just your own thoughts.